Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of James, the first chapter, James chapter 1. I want to give you a division of this book, not the whole book, but this chapter, first of all, tonight, and we do have a division for the whole book, but this chapter, first of all, verse 1, is an introduction, and verses 2 and 3, or 2 through 4, rather, and here's the main titles, Patience Through Tribulation. I want you to get these down. You might want them later on. Verses 2 through 4 is patience through tribulation. And verses 5 through 8, wisdom through prayer. Verses 9 through 11, riches through poverty. Seems like some of these things are paradox or contradictory, doesn't it? And then verses 13 and 14, we skip 12 for a specific reason because it refers to it in, in our first heading. Verses 13 and 14 is sin through lust and lure. 15 through 17 is death through sin. 18 through 20, life through the word. And 21 through 27, blessing through doing. Seven points. I'll repeat them for you. And by the way, that's a good outline for you preachers and uh, deacons that uh, teach a lesson. Verses 2 through 4 is patience through tribulation. Give it to you again. 5 through 8, wisdom through prayer. 9 through 11, riches through poverty. 13 and 14, sin through lust and lure. Death through sin is, is uh, 15 through 17 is death through sin. And then 18 through 20 is life through the word. And then 21 through 27, blessing through doing. Now then, we're going to start in this chapter of James tonight, if I have a time, if I have time to touch on all of these seven points, I will, but I doubt very seriously if we'll get through with them, probably the first half, maybe, but we always try to let the Lord lead us in our teaching, and however far we get, that's how far we get. So let's look at the first chapter, if you will, please, of James. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. You know, if you identify the James, there are at least six Jameses in the New Testament. And when you start comparing them, sometimes you can consolidate two or three of them into the one person so that they're named in a different way. To give you all those references and by the process of elimination, come down to who the author of the book of James, we believe, really is. Uh, we know it was not James the son of Zebedee because he was killed with a sword, Acts chapter 12, wasn't it? James, the brother of John, who was sons of Zebedee. Remember, James, James and John were sons of Zebedee. There are other Jameses, James the son of Alphaeus, and James the less, and various ones. And then James, the Lord's brother. Let me give you this one to try to identify in the Gospel of Mark chapter 6, if you will. Mark chapter 6, verse 3 will give us some help. And I believe this will pinpoint, and I will not uh, try to develop and give you the process of elimination to show you the exact one that's the author of the book of James, but just give you at least a little bit of information because it would take a whole lesson to look up all the references of the Jameses and to uh, eliminate the ones that it could not be that's the author of the book of James. But let me give you this verse. It says in verse 3, Mark 6, verse 3, is this is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, referring to Jesus? And it says, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah. James and Jude were brothers, or Judah here it's called. And this James were brothers 
Or we'll call them half-brothers of Jesus because Mary and Joseph had children after the birth of Jesus. Remember the Bible says she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. In uh, Luke and in, in, in Matthew's Gospel, it says that Joseph knew her not until she had brought forth her firstborn son. And it indicates that there were other children born to that union. And so these would be half-brothers of Jesus. Now, the Catholic Church eliminates this because they don't want to admit that, that Mary had any other children other than Jesus. So they try to steer clear of this and, and indicate that it's another James that wrote the book of James. But I believe that this is one James that was the Lord's brother. And later on, his brethren at one time, it says in John chapter 6, did not believe on him. Let me see if I can find that. John chapter 6. John chapter 7, rather, is verse 5. It says this, For neither did his brethren believe in him. So it's talking about at that particular time in Jesus' life and ministry, these were yet unbelievers. And later on, evidently, his brethren did come to believe on him. And James, the author of the book of James, was the Lord's brother, as far as we can tell. And as I say, to prove it to you, I've only hinted at it, and I don't expect that what I've given you would be decisive proof in your minds, but there's so much information, if you compare all the scriptures, that we wouldn't have time to deal with anything of the other part of the message if we just dealt with that particular part to prove that this James is the Lord's brother. But anyway, uh, be that as it may, it says James. Now back to the book of James, and we'll pick it up there. I just wanted to give you a bit of introduction so you'd have some idea. I could give you, all, and I can give you all the references after the service if you'd like the references of the names, and then you can put the compile them and put them together and see what you find out. In Acts chapter 12, we do know that James, the brother of John, was killed with a sword, and they took Peter and imprisoned him. If you'll remember the incident. So we know it could not have been that particular James of the son of Zebedee, right? So here we find it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he puts the deity of Christ here. He puts God and our Lord Jesus Christ all in the same statement. And he says, a servant would mean a bond servant or a bond slave. He, as Paul and Peter, also include themselves as bond servants of the Lord. You know, even though we're free as Christians, we can become servants of God. And willingly we do that. We have to do it on a willing uh, and voluntary basis. You know, Paul says, if Christ shall make you free, the Bible says, if Christ shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And Paul says, stand uh, fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made you free, or us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So we see we are perfectly free, and yet he says, a bond servant or a bond slave. And we can do that by on a voluntary basis. It says, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. So evidently the Jews uh, basically were the receivers of this letter, and it was written concerning them specifically, and yet all things in it have their application to us. Now verses 2 through 4 shows us patience through tribulation. I want us to see this now. It says, my brethren, you can see that they're Christians, Count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations. Now, the word temptations here means trials or tests. It doesn't mean temptations into sin. And we'll distinguish the difference later on. But we find that it's being tried, knowing that the trying of your faith, verse 3, worketh patience. And, but let patience have her perfect work, 
that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Patience through tribulation. You know, Jesus speaks of trials. Luke 22, verse 28, he says this. Verse 28 says, Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptation. Now then, Jesus never was tempted to evil because he had no inclination to sin. And he had no lust or, or evil within, so he could not be tempted. In that sense of the word. So what we're saying here is that he says, In my trials, in my testings, in my tests and trials, Jesus says, You have continued with me in these. And so... Uh, and Paul speaks of his uh, temptations and tribulations. In Acts 20, let me give you this. Acts chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. Paul says, serving the Lord with all... Verse 18 says, and when they were come to, to him, he said unto them, You know that from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptation, testings, tryings, which befell me by lying in wait of the Jews. Peter speaks of his temptation. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he says this in verse 6, Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for our seasons, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptation. And he speaks that Christians have manifold temptation. Now then, that means trials and testing. Now, how are we to have patience in trial and through tribulation? Because patience brings about, tribulation brings about patience, and it works patience in our hearts and lives. The book of Hebrews chapter 12, the Bible tells us that the Lord loves whom he chasteneth. In verse 6, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. That means that you're corrected, you have to undergo uh, trials and testings. Verse 11, it says, now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. No testing and trial that you undergo seems to be joyous at the time, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth that peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. So the tribulation or the testing and the trial and even the chastening brings about patience, and afterward it yields something that's beneficial. So patience through tribulation. Uh, it's not a sign of God's displeasure when we undergo testings from the Lord. But it's a, rather a sign of him testing our faith and, and trying us to see how we'll hold up and see what we'll let this work of testing and trial do in our lives. First Peter chapter 4 verse 12 tells us this. Listen carefully. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of the sufferings of Christ, uh, of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. He says, don't think it's strange. A lot of Christians, they think it's so strange if something uh, of an adverse nature happens to them. If you go through a time of trial or testing. And Peter says, don't think it's strange. Because says, when his glory is revealed then you can also rejoice at that time. Uh, Jesus said, in the world you shall have tribulation. John 16, verse 33. Look at this verse. John chapter 16, and verse 33. He says, these things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation. Now, what does tribulation work? Patience, right? 
In the world you shall have tribulation. And though the world itself brings about tribulation, sometimes God personally and on a personal individual basis in his providence brings about the testing and trying. Remember, God did tempt Abraham. It says he did test or try Abraham. And so it was directly from God. But Jesus says, in the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So we're to expect it. And someone says, well, how am I going to bear up under the temptation or the trial or the testing? In 1 Corinthians, let me give you a little bit of help. 10 verse 13. It says this, there hath no temptation. There's no testing or trial, temptation, taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able. Now, we're not talking being tempted into sin and the temptation of falling into sin. We're talking about being tested and tried. Who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to, of escape to escape that you may be able to bear it. God wants us to prove, God wants us to prove that during the temptation and during the testing, during the trying, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. He wants us to, to let it work. He says, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect, that is mature, grown up, uh, complete, and entire, wanting nothing. You, know, you heard the story of the... Older preacher, a young preacher came to him and he says, Preacher, I want you to pray that I'll have more patience. Most of you have heard this story. This older preacher got down, the young preacher, they got down and knelt there on the front pews or knelt down together to pray. The older preacher started praying. He says, God, I want you to give this man some testing, some trials, some tribulations. The young man tapped him on the shoulder and says, Listen, you misunderstood me. I want you to pray that I'd have patience. He says, Tribulation worketh patience, right? And patience experience, and experience hope. So the only way, God has a design, doesn't he, for us to get these things. Sometimes we misunderstand God's testings too, don't we? As well as this method of, of bringing about it. So um, it is through these things. Now then, uh, the Bible says that all things work together for good to them that love God. To them who are they called according to his purpose. It says, and we know that all things work together. And sometimes we say, well, how can all this work together for good if I'm going through so many trials and so many, so much uh, trying and so many tribulations in my life? God is trying to get us to grow. He's trying to get us to mature. He's trying to get us to have patience. And you know, it works on us all the time. And especially if we become uh, slack in that uh, uh, character are in that uh, grace of having patience. The more slack we become in it, and the more impatient we come, become, the more likely God is to send a little bit of trying so that we will learn more patience. It's good if we can go through these things and learn patience and let patience have a perfect work that you may be perfect and entire wanting nothing. I know that even as you progress in this and the more you learn patience, still from time to time when we become less mindful of the need of it, then God will send a little bit more of testing and trying so that he can purify us a little more, sanctify us a little more, and let it have its perfect work. The Bible teaches us to rejoice in tribulation. That's a pretty hard thing to do, isn't it? When you think of rejoicing in tribulation, I have two uh, comparisons. I want you to compare 
the action of Elijah at one time, and then the actions of Paul and Silas. In the book of 1 Kings 19, verse 4, listen to this. But he himself, this is Elijah, after he had won the victory on Mount Carmel, and then old Jezebel got after him, wicked Jezebel, and he started running for his life, and he fled. He went for his life in verse 3. In verse 4 it says, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die, and said, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I'm not better than my father. Elijah, under persecution, under testing, what did he do? He says, God, I, I just would rather die. Because that old wicked woman's after me and says, she's going to kill me. And he had already won a victory on Mount Carmel. He says, if God be God, serve him. If the Lord be God, serve him. Right? And he had won the greatest victories in his life. Sometimes we preachers, we get up and preach and have the greatest victory, and then we go home all whipped like a pup. And we shouldn't do that. We don't need that, do we? But if we'll learn, but what's the difference? Now, look, you look at old Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16. Look in Acts chapter 16, and I'll give you something. Uh, let's begin reading with verse 23. Well, verse 22. And the multitude rose up together against them. This is against Paul and Silas. Now, look. And the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. Paul and Silas now. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they beat them, laid the stripes upon their back, and cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison. Just any prison wasn't enough. He put them in the stronghold. And made their feet fast in the stock. Two guys that were preaching had to treat them like this. Like hardened criminals, didn't they? They made their feet fast in the stock. And at midnight, what did Paul and Silas do? They fell down on their face, and they said, oh, this terrible thing's happened to us, and we tried to preach the Word, and it didn't seem like it worked out, and, and begin to complain, Lord, I'd rather die than to live. What did happen? That's not the story, is it? It says, and at midnight, in the middle of the night, you know the midnight hour is the darkest hour, isn't it? And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. What were they doing? They weren't moping around. They weren't complaining. They were being tested and tried more severely than some of the others have. And yet, and they've been beaten and thrown in prison just because they were preaching the Word. And look what they did. And suddenly there was a great earthquake and the foundations of prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened. God sent down His angel and shook the doors of that prison house open. And look, and the keeper of the prison awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. He knew he was in for it. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm. You know the most harm people do is themselves. Do thyself no harm, for we're all here. Not a one's gone. Everybody's here. You're safe and secure. Nothing's going to happen to you. You kept the prison. We're not even going out. The prison doors are open, but we're going to stay here. In fact, if you read the story, they had to take, they had to come and, and get Paul and Silas out of prison because they were trying to get them to run out, you know, kind of invited them to come out, and they wouldn't do it. They said, no, they've done us this wrong. Let them come and fetch us out of this prison. Get us out of here. They didn't, they didn't want out. God made a way for them to get out, but they wanted to maintain their honor, right? And they said, these guys have done us wrong. Verse uh, 37, they wanted to thrust us out privily. And Paul says, nay, verily, but let them come themselves and fetch us out. See that in the last part of verse 37? 
But anyway, you know the story. Uh, the Philippian jailer called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas, brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The only place in the Bible that the direct question was asked. And you know, I believe the Holy Spirit gave the, the d- direct answer of the very necessity of salvation in order to be saved. And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You know, preachers complicated, and they say, believe and do. Believe and do this. Believe and uh, be baptized. Believe and join the church. Believe and take the Lord's Supper. Believe and do good works. Believe and, and go testify. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. All the other things are right, and they have their proper place in the Christian life. But he says, to be saved, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Savior. He died for your sins. He's the one you trust in. Roll your, put your faith and trust in him, and thou shalt be saved. And he took them the same hour of the night, and thy house. They spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them, look, the same hour of the night, and washed their stripes, their bleeding backs, and was baptized he in all his straightway. And when he had brought them into the house, his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. I, I have to finish reading this story. It's not to the point, but I'm going to read it anyway. And when it was. They, the magistrates, sent the sergeants, look here, saying, let those men go. And the keeper of the prison told this saying to Paul, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. But what Paul said unto them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned, being Romans, and have cast us into prison. And now, do they thrust us out privily? In other words, try to do it in secret and say, these guys, we want to get rid of them out of jail. We didn't have any business putting them in here. Paul says, nay, no, not so. Verily, let them come and fetch themselves and fetch us out. And the sergeants told these words to the magistrates, and they feared. Imagine, two guys down here in jail with the jail door open, and the magistrates are afraid because they won't get out of jail, right? Can't get rid of them. And uh, they feared when they heard that they were Romans. They knew the authority and the and the rights of Roman citizens. And they came and besought them and brought them out and desired them. They besought them and brought them out and desired them to depart out of the city. They said, we wish you fellows had gone. They went out of the prison, entered into the house of Lydia, and when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them and departed. Back in the book of James. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. You know what? This same Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. I guess he could learn after that experience that it pays to rejoice, even in prison. In Philippians 4, verse 4. And you know, Peter tells us that there's praise to be had at the appearing of Jesus Christ. That one we gave you in 1 Peter chapter 1. We read verse 6, and uh, we, we want to pinpoint verse 7. But let's read verse 6 again. 1 Peter 1, verse 6. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Now look. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes. Can you imagine the trial of the Christian's faith is more precious than gold to him? Why? It says, though it be tried with fire. You can really severely be tested, it says, might be found under praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Sometimes when we go through trials, we think that's the end of it, don't we? But Peter says, this trial that you go through now at the appearing of Christ is going to be found under praise and honor and glory. 
There's going to be a time in the future it's going to be brought back up and the, and God, uh, the Lord is going to say, look what, I know you were severely tested and your faith was tested and you were in heaven is through manifold temptations and you endured all of these trials of your faith and it worked patience. It worked patience for this life, but it worked praise for eternity. James says it's praise now. Peter says it's praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So don't ever think what you go through. Some people say, I've gone through so much in life. You know, you go through things and you go through trials and testings. But that's not the end of it. At the appearing of Jesus Christ. See, he doesn't forget it. He's, he will never forget anything you've endured for his name's sake. And you've endured in faith. If you have James again, turn back. The reason we omitted in our outline, verse 12, is because I want you to read it now. It says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. See verse 12, James 1, verse 12. So James promises, as Peter does, that it's going to be for our good and, our, and God's glory that you shall receive a crown of life. Now I want to give you the second point of the message, and that's probably all we'll have time for, is verses 5 through 8. And we're talking about here wisdom through prayer. It says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind, and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. You don't ask, ask in faith. You're double-minded. If you ask wavering, you're like a wave of the sea that's driven with the wind and tossed. Now look, that's a wonderful passage of Scripture. Wisdom through prayer. It says, if any of you or if any man lack wisdom, what does he do? Let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. You know, there's a lot that is involved in these verses of Scripture that maybe you don't see right on the surface. First of all, a person must realize his lack of wisdom, that he needs something from God. That we're not wise in our own. Uh, the worldly wisdom is not good enough. Human wisdom is not good enough. So we need divine wisdom. And so we must realize that there is a great deal of difference between human wisdom and divine wisdom. And we must realize that, that on the human level, we may even profess to have some of it, which most of us don't have a, an overabundance of that. But then we must realize that especially we do not have that divine wisdom that's so greatly needed. And in, in doing that, it says, let him ask of God. Now then, if you ask of God, there's, there's a lot of uh, things involved. Because first of all, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you ask of God, you ask of God who is God Almighty and who is to be reverenced and honored. And you bow humbly before God. See, Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And you see, fear there means a godly fear. It's a godly, re it's a reverence for God. So, you cannot just ask haphazardly, not regarding the person and character of God. You may realize a lack of wisdom, a lack of divine wisdom, and realize your need for it, but still, in order to receive it, you must ask of God, realizing that the, the Bible has already said the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and ask Him very reverently. 
and know that it must come from a holy God. You see, there are, there are conditions of this prayer as well. The Bible says here you, you have to ask in faith too, don't you? You have to ask in faith. You must believe that God is willing to give you this wisdom because of your attitude and your approach to God in asking for it. See, God knows our motivation. God knows our motive. Why do you want wisdom? Why do you want knowledge? Do you want it just to be a smart aleck? Do you want it just to show that you've got it above everyone else? Or do you want it sincerely from God because uh, you need it for yourself? Reminds me of a... Let's turn back and see about uh, old uh, King Solomon in uh, 1 Kings chapter 3, beginning with verse 7. You know, Solomon was made king, and Solomon asked for wisdom. In verse 7, And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father, to succeed David. Now look, you have 1 Kings 3, verse 7, And I am a little child. He was not a little child, was he? But he felt like that before a holy God. He says, I'm a little child. I know not how to go out or to come in. That shows he was humble. That shows he recognized God. Now, O Lord my God, he says in verse 7, and thy servant, he was servant of God. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen, a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. I have a great job to do, and I'm just like a little child. I don't even have the ability, recognition, standing to do it. He says, Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this thy so great a people. He recognized that God's people were great to him. And he says, I'm, I'm put in a position of leadership and I, I'm just like a child. I need wisdom. I need guidance. I need understanding. I want an understanding heart. And verse 11 says, now look, well, verse 10 says, And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. See, God is pleased when we come in the right way for the right thing. And, and God said unto him, Because thou hast asked this thing, and thou hast not asked for thyself. He didn't ask selfishly, did he? Thou hast not asked for thyself long life, neither hast asked riches for thyself. You didn't ask long life or riches, nor hast asked the life of thine enemies. Didn't want to kill all your enemies and get rid of them. Now look. But hast asked for thyself understanding to discern judgment. Something that is really good because that's what you need. And that's what, where he came to God for the right thing. He says, Behold, I have, done, I have done according to thy words. Lo, I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. And I have also given, he says, I'm going to give you some fringe benefits besides. You see, when we come in the right way and ask for the right thing, God says, I've also given thee that which thou hast not asked both riches and honor, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. And so on and so forth. And if thou wilt walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as thy father David did walk, then I will lengthen thy days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream, and he, be, he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and offered peace offerings and made a feast to all his servants. And so on. You see how... Solomon received wisdom because he asked it in the right way. Where, is, where are we to get wisdom? We're to get it from God. We're to ask it of God. And it says uh, that back in James now, 
Any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. You know, sometimes children ask fathers for something, and the father might upbraid them for asking so many times or for so many things. But God does not upbraid. He upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But look, verse 6, but let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. How can you ask in faith? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. If God has promised something to you, if God has made a specific promise, and you claim that promise by faith, then God's going to do that. The trouble is, most people, when they pray, they don't realize, they don't latch on to the promise of God to hear and answer that prayer. There are too many alternatives. There are too many ramifications, too many things that are not involved in that specific prayer. You know, I often pray uh, concerning the presence and anointing and guidance of the Holy Spirit for my preaching and teaching of the Word. And I, I hang on to a very specific promise of Jesus. Jesus said this, If ye then being evil, now listen, this may help some of us. If ye then being evil, and we are, right? Know how to give good gifts unto your children, and we do, right? How much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? So we can claim that promise and ask God's promise for the presence and guidance and anointing of the Holy Spirit just as true as if we were to ask a father for something and he would, even though he's evil, would give a good gift to his child. How much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? And God has never failed to give me that guidance and presence when I've asked in that particular way, claiming that promise. And so let's learn to ask like here. If we need wisdom, ask in faith. God has said for us to ask for it, right? And he said for us to do it in this way. Let him ask of God. We know that the word of God specifies certain things that are necessary in order to receive this wisdom, that we can't be double-minded or wavering about it, and that we certainly must reverence God because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom, And we take all the word of God's instructions and promises together, and God will give us the wisdom. I'm glad that God does that. And he does give that in answer to prayer. Now then, the reason you would not receive it is it says nothing wavering, nothing doubtful, nothing wondering. Uh, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. It says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. In other words, God wants you to make up your mind that he is God and that he will reward, that he will do what you've asked him to do. You see, a lot of folks are just, well, God might do it, and he might not. God may be God, and he may not be God. God is, is probably holy, but I'm not so sure about it. You know, uh, I'm supposed to reverence God, and I uh, plug along the way, and I don't show God the reverence that he, that he is due. Well, then, how can I expect that God would hear a prayer like that? Because it's wavering, isn't it? It's very uncertain. It's unspecified. There's too many doubts and fears and anxieties, and my mind is too... I, I have too much of a double mind. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. In all his ways. The thing about it is, if you're going to be stable and established as a Christian, a child of God, you've got to get your mind upon that which is definite and true and you have deep convictions about. The Bible says, without faith... Now listen, back to faith here. 
It is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe. Now look, first of all, that he is. Right? And if he is God, he is God in all of the way that the Bible reveals him to be God. Holy in his character. Righteous. A hating sin and iniquity. And judging that which is wrong, evil. And he will not lower his standard for the sake of man's whims and, and complainings. He's going to maintain righteous judgment upon us and that God is to be feared and reverenced. So, believe that He is God and, now look, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. That God will not only, He's not only God whom He claims to be and whom the Bible presents, but that He will hear and answer our prayer because He's promised to do it. That's faith, isn't it? That's faith. And you know, the reason so many people say, well, I asked and God didn't do it. You didn't ask in faith. You didn't claim any specific promise. You didn't look to God's Word and see if you were entitled to get that in the first place. Right? You just dreamed it up and thought you ought to have something. And when you did, you know what? It says that you may consume it upon your own lust, right? God says you're not going to get that if you ask to consume it upon your own lust. We have that later on in James, remember? So you're not going to get just what you do, just what your little feeble uh, mind comes up with. Have you ever heard these folks say, "Well, God'll give you anything you pray for." He will not do any such thing. He won't do that. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Yes, if they're the desires of His heart. If you're in His will, He will, and He'll hear and answer every prayer. God knows what you need. It says, if we ask, John says, if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And we know that if he hear us, we have the petition that we desire of him. Because you've asked it in faith. And God has promised to, to answer that prayer of faith. The prayer of faith will save the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. James says that as well. So let's uh, get our minds upon what is true and what is uh, promised and what is guaranteed in God's word. And then you have a right to pray for it. And just like we have a right to claim Jesus as our Savior and to know that Jesus is our Savior. How do you know that Jesus is your Savior? How do you know you've been saved? Because the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And you lay, lay your faith upon that promise. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The Word says to believe on Him and you'll be saved. How do you know you're saved? Because I've, I've Claim that promise by faith. I believed on Christ as my own personal Lord and Savior, and therefore I know I'm saved. Someone says, well, I know because I feel good. Well, you may feel good today and bad tomorrow. You may feel high today. You may be on a mountaintop today, and you may be in the valley of depression tomorrow. But you're still just as saved in that valley as you were on the mountaintop. The only thing, your feelings fluctuate, right? It's good to feel good. And it's good to be on the mountaintop. But you know, there was only one time that Jesus was on the mountaintop with the three, and they were three special disciples, Peter, James, and John. And the rest of the time, they were in the valleys and fields of service. Have you ever thought about that? Only one time on the mountaintop, where Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun. Of all their experiences, one mountaintop experience for Peter, James, and John. And they came right down off of that mountain into the valley of service and they met a, a man possessed with demons. And they had to deal with the ordinary things of life. So don't always think just because you're a Christian you're going to be on the mountaintop every day. I see some people, they think, well, every day you ought to just be, uh, you know, really high. You ought to really be on the mountaintop. Well, it's just not practical. 
You can't spend all your time up in the cloud. You have to get your feet on the ground sometime, and you have to come down and serve. You got to work some. You got to serve some. You got to labor some. You got to sweat some, right? And so that's the story. But anyway, I think there's two things that we've learned tonight: that patience through tribulation and wisdom through prayer. We'll take up these others at another point in time in in our messages. Thank you for your kind attention. Let's stand together for a word of prayer, if you will, please.